The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. You found the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Here's the host, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another edition of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Today, we'll be speaking with my friends Ted Kidd and Nate Adams. Ted and Nate are both very intimately involved in the home performance, building science, building performance market, do a lot of residential work together, develop kind of a scheme, a way of generating business. And I think it's really worth a listen. If you're curious about getting into building science or you want to know more about it from a consumer perspective and how they talk to consumers, how they integrate consumer stream of consciousness into their thinking, this guy's got an awful lot to say. It's a fun interview. Hope you enjoy it. Today we're going to be talking about a topic with two fellows, two friends of mine, Ted Kidd and Nate Adams. Guys both have nice short names, so it's easy to pronounce, easy to remember, easy to fill in the blanks. And we're going to be talking about making home performance the norm, not the exception. That's going to be sort of our theme today. And I want to introduce you, Nate and Ted. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Bill. You're welcome. So just for a point of orientation, Tell us where you're from and where you do your work, and then we'll get into more about what your work is in a little bit. So go ahead. We'll go alphabetic this time. Nate, you're first. Last name, Adams. Okay. <laughs> Am I sitting in the front right of the class like I always did in school? You are. <laughs> <laughs> Ted and I really practice together. I end up doing most of the footwork now. I live and work in Cleveland, Ohio, and we help homeowners solve problems in their homes that are bothering them through a fairly long and involved process that also comes with high closing ratios and a pretty high average sale, the average sale being 27600 since I adopted this process. And Ted was the one that invented it and taught it to me. Got it. Ted, what's your background? Where are you working? So, I'm in Rochester, New York. And I went through the NYSERDA training. I've written a little blurb here if you want me to read it. My background is economics and financial planning. I have a residential real estate for over 30 years, which has impacted my perspective. In the 90s, I became a student of the Sandler Sales Institute, which is the basis of our approach to consultative sales. And so this is really important. Nate and I keep going back to Sandler. And he's sort of a hero of both of ours. And then in 2008, after a bunch of indecisiveness, I signed up for the Building Performance Institute Building Analyst class in Syracuse. That broke a lot of my false preconceptions about how homes perform. From that course, I immediately signed up for the BPI envelope in March, and then the BPI heating in April, and then the heat pump cooling class in May. After that, I hired a company to come audit my house. The process was baffling and somewhat half-assed. Ironically, when they found out about my coursework, they recruited me. What they really wanted was to sell insulation and HVAC. What I really wanted was to play with a blower door, and they gave me a blower door as part of the deal, so that was pretty happy. I worked at that company for a year and a half, and it was a fantastic experience. I got a lot of help from a lot of people. I was partnered with two fantastic energy auditors. The first one was a guy named Terry Klo, and then the second one is Todd Martin. I'm friends with these people today. I convinced 
the ownership that we needed to sell energy audits after getting exhausted trying to perform these half-assed audits to 10 homes a week for free. And one of the things that ended up happening is Hal Smith, who is the owner, had frequently repeated, ask forgiveness, not permission. So I basically started selling audits after he said it was a thing that couldn't be done. And shortly thereafter, the company switched to doing that. My average project in the year and a half was $16,300. I think the state program average was $6,500 at the time. Eight years later, Nate and I basically sell energy audits. Our average project is $27,600 with no governmental help. And I don't think the New York program has increased the average sale meaningfully. So if they have, it's due to free money. By going after more low income and poor, they've driven the portion of the project covered by incentives way up. In other words, for the $6,500 average 2008 project, their consumer incentive was $650 or 10%. Now I think they may have $8,000 projects, but I suspect they're paying maybe 3000 of that. So they're pretty good at obfuscating, but anybody who likes numbers can find out the true numbers. The program has been in slow motion collapse ever since free audits, which put me out of business because I was in the business selling audits and you can't sell a free audit. Right. I remember you talking about that a lot online. That's sort of where I met you through some online forums and postings and things like that. So just taking it back a couple steps, recognizing that the entire audience may not be familiar with what NYSERDA is. That's the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. And they cover the whole state. And correct me if I'm wrong, they cover the whole state, but a number of different programs. This isn't their only thing. This is one of the things they do. Is that correct? That's correct. And they have a state energy program that touches, is it low income? What are sort of the bounds of this program? Now, my understanding is that weatherization, I'm a little bit away from it, but we had an assisted home performance and then straight home performance. And now my understanding is that weatherization can fall in below the assisted home performance. And weatherization basically is $7,000 of free money for people with very low income, below 60% of the median income qualify for weatherization, if I get that right, and then 80% of median income qualify for assisted. Assisted pays for half. It used to pay for half up to $10,000. Now it pays, I think, for half up to $8,000. And then they have attractive financing, some financing through OnBill, which I lobbied hard for and am a fervent believer in. I love the on-bill premise because it keeps your energy infrastructure cost with your energy bill. And so it has sort of a built-in transparency of cost to it. Probably coming from my economics background, I want all my numbers together. Yeah, I said the word finance earlier and now you said it again. (laughs) So I see the thread developing there. Well, and I'm a bit Ausbergen, so numbers are kind of God to me. Okay. You see them when you close your eyes, maybe even before <laughs> you close your eyes. So the program in New York, we got a picture on that. Nate, let's jump over west and follow those Great Lakes down. And what's happening in Cleveland? Anything like this? No. One of the things that we actually like about this area is there really aren't any 
decent utility programs. There's still one from the local gas company that's limping along. It was funny, I just did an initial yesterday and there's a $400 rebate if you go with, I think it's a 96% plus furnace. And this client installed a new furnace a year ago, which was of course far too large for the house. It was 100,000 BTU when it should have been a 60. But no one of the three or four companies that he got bids from actually mentioned the rebate program. So it's really not getting used extensively anymore. And back in 2012, when I was a contractor and using that program, and I was their number one contractor, when I stopped contracting, I heard that their installation work fell off a cliff. So basically, I ended up driving the program because I was mentioning the program, and then all of my competitors had to follow along. And as soon as I stopped mentioning it, it kind of went away. So the good news is there really aren't any programs to really have to fight against because what we find is the programs, they end up telling you what to do and how to do it. And that's not a good position to ever be in. Well, they don't know how to do it and they don't know what to do. So they're actually not the people who should be doing that. They should just be saying what they want and letting the market deliver. And it's hard for them to even understand that. Talk about the goals of what they want. Yes. Yes. We'll pay you if you deliver this, is what we'd like to see the marketplace evolve to. Correct. In your vision, you could shape this. What would you say would the goals be? Would it be strictly the utility bills? Would there be any other factors that come into those goals? For the utility, it would be whatever the utility sees value in. So, If reducing energy use is something that they see value in, then that's what they would pay for. What we deliver to the consumer is what the consumer sees value in. And right now what ends up happening is the utilities is dictating the value and saying, no, you don't get to deliver what the consumer wants. You have to deliver what we want. And that's why these programs fail is because the consumer is like, well, I don't really give a rat's ass about what you want. I want what I want. And so I'm not going to pay for the stuff that you want. And so we have a sales problem. Nate, let's sort of switch over to Ted, describe sort of his background, his training, his experience in a little nutshell. Could you give us yours, please? My background, I fell into the industry totally accidentally back in 2005 by taking an inside sales position for a fiberglass distributor. So they sold fiberglass to contractors that were building new buildings. So primarily housing, some commercial. And a year later, I ended up in outside sales for the same company. And then we got bought by a fiberglass manufacturer. So I got to see a bunch of different sides of the industry, the wholesale side, the manufacturing side. And then with the housing crash, unfortunately, my job evaporated with it. And I started an insulation contracting company doing retrofit insulation with my wife. Did that for several years, but realized that I had created a monster. I was too often not solving problems for people. And I was working 80 hours a week trying to keep a crew going. And I just hated my life. (laughs) I absolutely hated it. When my wife and I were driving someplace one night and she's like, Nate, can I have one evening alone with you per week? And I screamed at her, no. And I knew something needed to change. I was way, way out of balance. And right about that time, Ted and I had met on LinkedIn And it was the same Ted that you remember. He was really angry at that point because a program design shift had eliminated his business, which is not free market. 
you shouldn't have a government making a rule change and destroying a business in the process. That's not good governance. And he started teaching me his process, and we have worked on it for several years, getting it to where it's a pretty nice little machine. We still need to turn the lead flow up a little bit. The funnel is not working as well as we'd like, but once we get that ironed out, once people get into the funnel, they're kind of stuck. <laughs> they tend to execute projects. This process, are you doing the work in Cleveland and Rochester are other people adopting your process? Do you share that? How does that all work? Is it a franchise or at least in concept, perhaps? In concept, yes. So we've been building it with the goal in mind of a $15 or $20 an hour person being able to do this and still maintain the high closing ratios. We're running somewhere in the 70% range right now. And so we're working with a few people currently, Stephen Reardon's one, and Neil Comparado and I have been chatting as well to see how this could be adapted to the life of an HVAC tech. We don't think that an HVAC sales guy is going to be a good fit because they're probably looking to just sell the box and have the quick sale and move on, where techs oftentimes have a little bit longer viewpoint. If they come in and they're doing the maintenance agreement, they're going to see that piece of equipment a couple times a year if they're consistently on that piece of equipment. So they're going to have a longer term vision. And to us, that is a better target for home performance work because home performance work requires a long-term perspective. You can't just make one little tweak and expect it to solve problems for the client. Oftentimes, the houses are so badly out of balance that you really have to make a big swing at them. So if we can get techs to just begin to follow a light script, we think that they will be able to land some initial consultations. And once you get into the initial consultation, we've been packaging this process so that it's teachable and pretty easy to follow moving forward. But we're early in that process. It's probably going to be middle of the year or so before we start getting that put together well. Okay. So middle of the year 2018, in case someone's listening in 2025, when these podcasts have become famous. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll look back and say, this was the inspirational moment. This is where we first heard about it. It became public. This is the master plan. We'll be coming out with a Model 3 Tesla right? <laughs> um, and on top of the world. And this is not the 2008 Tesla where he was 12 hours from going bankrupt. Right. My blower door will be launched right. into space. Right. <laughs> we need to know the music that'll be playing in the background, Ted. <laughs> will the screen say, don't panic? <laughs> It'll say, uh, don't take part in a utility program. It's all that's kind of long for a screen. Yeah. Nothing against utility programs, but these are great observations. Well, NYSERDA has made a monopoly. They basically have said, okay, nobody else can play in our playground. We're going to make energy audits free, and therefore we totally devalue energy audits. And we've turned them into mechanisms for creating a softening tool that softens up the homeowner. Well, if, nice, if the state is blessing it, then I guess we're probably protected. And yeah, okay, so close your eyes and bend over is basically what NYSERDA is doing to the consumer. Honestly, they're doing it to the contractors too, because their closing ratios from these leads are not very high. And a big thing that every contractor should be watching is their cost per lead. And if you have to run 
even four leads to get a project, that's not good. But some of these are running into the six, eight, 10, 12, 15 leads to get a job out of it. That's an enormous amount of time and effort spent. And it's wastefully. We don't like doing energy audits for people that aren't a good fit. We just don't like doing it. Even though we charge quite a bit for our audits, somewhere between $800 and $1,400, the hourly rate still isn't that great because they take a while. Doing the planning process that we do is no joke. It's a solid three days worth of work. So if you're not a good fit, don't do it. And the curse is with the way that NYSERDA and a lot of the programs do this, they send leads that aren't necessarily good. And what they're ending up doing is making people spin their wheels rather than stepping back asking questions. Is this a good fit? Educating the consumer, letting them come up to speed on how their houses actually function so that by the time they become a real lead, they are a real lead. That's basically our secret. Yeah. I'm going to throw a challenging thought at you guys. Where would you be if the NYSERDA program didn't exist? Nowhere. I went to BPI classes, 75% funded. By NYSERDA. So the classes were $1,000 a piece. I, the tuition was 75% funded. I had to pay to go stay in Syracuse for a week. but And I learned a tremendous amount. And I got really lucky because I was there in 2008, which is before things sort of really hit the fan and went askew. With the ERA funding, the Recovery Act funding? Is that what you're referring to? I think the ERA funding was part of it. I also think there was some turnover where where the original people, the original designers who understood all the subtleties left. And then you got new people that didn't understand, why is this toothpick here? I don't think we need this toothpick. They would take the toothpick away and now the whole thing collapses. So that was a real problem. A lot of situations in life, I think I'm a little bit older than both you guys, but a lot of situations in life, sometimes you need something to focus your attention on to build something better. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what you've done here, which is great. And it's great to have this dialogue and to have sort of this dynamic tension that will make people think about it. I know a few people in the industry, and Ted, you're one of them, that you need to have an opinion when you talk to or listen to Ted. He's going to push you (laughs) one way or another, but he's going to get you off of dead center. He's a polarizer. You're going to be driven towards one magnetic north or magnetic south, but you're going to be moving. And that's the objective. So kudos to you guys for what you're doing. People just need to take a breath and learn and understand and see where they fit in this whole picture. You're talking about the sales lead process needs to get better. And for our listeners that don't know, Nate was actually my first podcast guest. I think it was episode one, perhaps. Three. Three. Okay. You did two on your own and then I was the first guest. Yeah. We're approaching 20 now. And in that period of time, you had been working on and released a book, which I think you have an intention for that to be helpful as a lead generator, because I think all three of us agree, in order to have a business, you need customers. This kind of business that... (laughs) (laughs) No, you just need a trust fund. Right, that's right. (laughs) You know where I can get one of those? (laughs) But you need to have customers who care and have a passion. And this is something I spoke about the other day on my podcast. And you need to have contractors who care and have a passion. You need to cultivate that passion. You need to provide easily accessible tools, stories, pathways. Why don't you guys, Ted, there's some of you in Nate's book. Why don't you talk about the Home Comfort book, please? Well, I want to say something first. I think one of the problems in home performance is it's not viewed as a sport. In sport, you have competition and you keep track of numbers. But also in sport, you have rules. 
And so part of what prompted Nate to write this book is it's kind of the rule book. We need to have everybody understand some of the basics of building science. And if the homeowner understands the basics of building science and the contractors, salespeople also are running on that same rule book, now we can actually go out on the playing field and start kicking the ball around and have hope of having an interesting game. And what we're finding is home performance contractors are buying cases of these books to give to their salespeople. Nate's intention for the book looks like it's playing out. It's very exciting. Gives me goose pimples. Ted's very excited about this. (laughs) I have to say he dragged his feet as I wrote the thing for two years. So it finally gets complete. He's like, this is great. This is amazing. I'm like, oh, thanks. (laughs) But it's all good. He was supportive through the whole thing, but he didn't see all of it. But it's hard. You can't see into somebody's mind of what's going. What my intention with this book was, when I got into this world 10 years ago, I wish that I had had this book. This is what I wanted. I'm very much a why kind of person. You can tell me what to do, and then I will drive you crazy with why questions until you satisfy that question. So this book is meant to show how a home actually functions and then talk about what HVAC should do, but usually doesn't, and how important sizing is and how smaller is better. And that tends to terrify people because they're afraid about getting cold on the cold day when they really should be worried about the 70% of the year that's moderate. Then a lot of people have questions about what kind of insulation should I use? And the conversation almost always goes to our value rather than affect Does it work? What are the energy bills that come out the other side? So in general, I don't really care how you get someplace, but I want to see that you can predict where you're going to get. If you don't understand the rules, like Ted's mentioning here, you are not going to be as likely to get to a good result. And even when you understand the rules, we're still trying to run the razor's edge of just how far do we have to go to solve the problem that the client wants. And we're not looking for 100% certainty. We're looking for somewhere in the 80 to 90% range because 100% certainty might be a half a million bucks. 90% certainty might be 15 to 30. So we're just playing with that game. So you talked about the predicting, but then you actually go back and Do you measure that the performance was achieved and however you define performance? Yes. So there's two main things. There's one very fast feedback loop you get, which is blower door. So you test the house in, you find out how much it leaks. Through our planning process, we make typically two or three blower door prediction numbers. So this is where we need to get to for this energy model to actually happen. And for our sizing to be appropriate. Yes, and for the sizing to be right, because uh, load calcs are heavily dependent on blower door, like 30 to 70% of load is air leakage. So if you don't know that number, you're going to guess high because you don't know literally half the puzzle. So you have to guess big. But with the blower doors, we find out where we land after we choose a target with the client. And usually we beat the tar out of them, but sometimes we don't. Uh, I think I've missed on three projects. And a couple of them fairly big whiffs, they'll be okay. But if you don't predict and then see where you land, you aren't going to know. And then we do the same thing. So before predicted and after with energy use. Because energy use, people don't generally care about that much, but it's a good proxy for success. 
Predictive accuracy. It's all about predictive accuracy, right? So even if they don't care about the energy savings, if we predicted $400 worth of energy savings and we get 425 or 370, then variance can be behavior or weather or whatever. One point I want to go back to, Nate, you mentioned 30 to 70% of load is leakage. That sounds like it's a huge miss if you're not doing a blower door test, if you're doing any project of scale, any HVAC project. You have to have a blower door test if you want to be any good at this. But I want to go back to that 30 to 70%. Is that based upon some statistic, a report, or experience? Oh, boy. You had to ask that question. I remember reading it years ago. It probably was in like John Krieger's book, uh, Residential Energy, something along those lines. But we've also seen it in our models. So if you take a house from 4,500 CFM 50 to 1,700 CFM 50, and you've got the load calc for both of those, it's pretty easy to see that you cut the load calc in half. You have evidence of those kind of blower door tests, I'm sure, because I've seen it too in the houses I've lived in. That's fairly typical of what we're doing is a 4,500 to 1,800 type of reduction. Yeah, that's a pretty common sort of setup. So really, the only way to truly figure it out is to take your load calculation tool and take it off of the very leaky to very tight settings and try putting in numbers. In the third chapter of my book, HVAC 102, you can see this in effect with, it was a very old house we were working on, it was 1840, something like that. And it was tremendously leaky. It was so leaky that I actually couldn't blow it or test the whole house simultaneously. It was beyond the 16,000 CFM 50 that it will extrapolate to. The blower doors only measure about 6,000. And beyond that, they start to extrapolate. But then the extrapolation ends at 16,000. This house was that leaky. And we saw tremendous swings in the load calcs. So the house required something like 90,000 BTUs when it was loose and also uninsulated. So the other thing here is if you have a house that's reasonably well insulated, so R11 in the walls and R11 in the attic, the air leakage becomes a huge piece of load. When we modeled that house fully insulated, we got its load down to where a three-ton heat pump would do the trick. So pretty amazing from a 90,000 BTU house. Yeah. You talk a lot about HVAC sizing, load calculations. Are either of you HVAC contractors or how do you integrate that in with the work that you do? Ted, go first. (laughs) No, we're not actually. I worked for one, sort of like saying I slept at a Holiday Inn Express last night. (laughs) What we're doing is we are actually standing behind the homeowner and then letting the homeowner have the relationship with the contractors. And then giving the homeowner guidance on how to manage that relationship. And if the homeowner doesn't have any preference, we know people that we have pretty good confidence in. When we do our budgeting with the homeowners, we have a pretty good idea of what things cost. And we generally, we just get one bid, which contractors really like. If their bid comes in under our estimate, they get the job. If it comes in over our estimate, Somebody made a mistake. Either we made a mistake with our numbers or the contractor made a mistake with their numbers or we need to get another bid. And by doing this, a bunch of really good things happen. The contractors have very high closing ratios when they come do bids for us. And we don't work them to squeeze 100 or $200. Oh, what can you do? Can you sharpen your pencil? We don't do that. 
because what we found is there are always things that come up in jobs that are unforeseen. And if you squeeze the contractor's margin out of a job, then he doesn't have any room to do those little things, those little favors that you ask of him. Now the whole job comes to a screeching halt and change orders have to be figured out and pricing and all the rest of that stuff. And it's really friction to the implementation. And so part of our philosophy is how do you remove pointless friction points? And the way you remove it is by not being obsessively cheap. Yeah. You need to have uh, capital to be able to flex and adapt to the situation, to be able to adjust. And you guys deal with existing homes. So there's a lot of unknowns. Is that true? I mean, do you deal with any new homes? A handful. Yeah, we do. There's still unknowns there too, because unless it's a factory built home with modular construction and certified factory, or not even certified factory, but just in a factory field built means that there's a lot of room for variation. I'll just use that word in quotes. I like this concept of pointless friction points. That's a very interesting phrase there. Ted, what you just described there was probably a large element of your consultative selling process where you're standing there behind the owner, being a consultant to them, sort of watching the numbers, having a lot of experience with these things with contractors and know what can and can't be done, but not actually executing, but not to take away from your experience with people that have executed products. Well, it's interesting because Nate is actually on these jobs sort of as project manager. And helper. And helper. But the way that payment works doesn't come from the contractor. While it comes from the homeowner, it doesn't go to the contractor. The homeowner pays the contractor directly, and then the homeowner pays us directly. And this is by painful experience. We are continuously trying to squeeze conflict of interest points out of our system also. And if you are at all in between the contractor and the homeowner, that puts you all kinds of hidden, subtle conflicts arise, and they put you in a bad position. Whereas sometimes you have to take the club out and beat a contractor over the head. And it's really hard to do that if he's your sub. It's much easier to do that if you're standing behind the homeowner and you're saying, so I'm back here, I'm the big brother behind the homeowner, and you really would like me to stay here. Because if I step around the homeowner, things are going to be unpleasant for you, and we all want things to be pleasant. (laughs) And to be fair, that hasn't had to happen very often, but both of my early HVAC projects were an issue with this. So I got walked over on the very first one, which we pulled off really quite a stunt. And this is all Ted, really, not me. The very first furnace I ever sold was tearing out a three-year-old furnace that that client had paid for. And at the time I was talking to one of the large HVAC contractors here in town, they were the ones that executed the replacement and also put in one that in retrospect, I wish we hadn't done. But I asked them, okay, so you're a third generation company. How many times have you ripped out a three-year-old furnace that client paid for? And they looked at me and said, never. I'm like, well, that was my first sale. <laughs> wow. This is his first furnace sale ever. <laughs> um, 
But that was some conflict. And at the time, Ted and I were new enough into our relationship that I didn't know who to trust. I didn't understand the sizing as well as I do now. So I was nervous about that project. And so I bent and I did what usually happens in the industry and went for a larger furnace than I should have. And that house still has some issues under low load conditions. They were trying to solve a second floor heating issue in the wintertime, which was because the furnace was shutting off too soon and the second floor had the longer ducts. So it wasn't getting up there. So it got better, but it wasn't as good as they were hoping for. And then the other instance, this really was a beating, but it was hard. The first heat pump that we specified, the 1918 House of the Future, we specified a three-ton. A three-ton was bid, and I showed up on the day of install, and there was a four-ton unit. And it was a three-hour battle royale where Ted had to insult the installer's mother's honor before finally the guy backed down and said, okay, I'll put the three-ton in. They just didn't want to go order the part. So knowing that that sort of thing is available, I think is very useful and comforting to homeowners. It's not the way that we want to work. And that was my first foray. And we don't work with that contractor anymore. I'm on my fourth HVAC contractor and my fourth insulation contractor. And I'm to the point with both of them where if it was a relationship, I don't feel like we need to see other people. You work in this northern corridor between Cleveland and Rochester. I'm imagining that between New York State and Ohio. Is there anyone else around in different parts of the country who you could point to and say, this kind of thing is going on there too, or these contractors? And you know, if you don't mind naming names, I'm fine with that. All the people that I think are really good at this stuff end up working for wealthy homeowners. And our target is we really want to fix home performance. Nate hates it when I say we want to fix home performance. That's too vague. They're not going to know what you're talking about. And he's right about these things. But I got a little pitch here. My growing frustration was I saw the original designer's intent with BPI and NYSERDA and that it was market transformation. They saw that the product delivery approach to control the built environment wasn't serving people well. And when I joined, I began to see what they saw, and I began to see the pieces that weren't in place for the sales approach. The problem is, how do you switch from here, do you want to buy my product and hope for the best, to solving the problem by finding a way to deliver consultative design? Now, I think I sort of went a little bit off of your topic, but is that helpful? It is. I think both of you are fans of Elon Musk. Of course. Yeah. Well, he just launched a freaking sports car into space and it's headed for Mars. I mean, geez. Right. Uh, (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, actually he missed and it's headed for the asteroid belt. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) What struck me there was you talked about, quote unquote, the good practitioners are working with wealthy homeowners who can afford the budget. So they don't need to fix the sales problem with these 1,300 to 2,800 square foot houses because they're working on million dollar homes, 5,000 square foot homes. And that's sort of the path for these really high quality home performance guys is they end up getting out of the market that most desperately needs to be served if home performance is to experience market transformation. But I'm going back to the Musk analogy. What was the price of his first car? 150 grand. He worked with the wealthy. Yeah. We're never going to get our money back. Nate and I are not going to get our money back. That first car. I'm not talking about the car, but the process. So he worked with people who could afford sort of the high quality and the luxury of it, at least the perceived luxury, but used that funding to be able to reach out and to come down 
to get closer to market transformation. That's his goal is market transformation. Yeah. We already have the Model 3, though. We have no desire to do the Sportster, the Roadster. Our Model 3 is working. These people that are our clients make seventy-five dollars to $150,000 a year. Our closing ratio end-to-end is, you heard Nate say, better than 70%. We get paid for the first visit, so we have no sales costs. Literally, our sales cost is negative. What we're doing is already working. We don't have to go work with rich people and figure it out. And we have worked with rich people, and that ends up actually requiring a different sales process than what we're using. Yep, it does. I'm not saying you're doing it wrong, but I'm saying for people listening, if they think the only place to go picking for these jobs is with people that have the bucks to spend, you guys offer an alternative. Oh, thank you. Yes. That was my point there. Sorry, it took so long to get there. (laughs) (laughs) I totally missed where you were going. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, we did jump. We don't feel like we need the Roadster or the Model S and Model X. In fact, there was one project that we did. It was a good-sized house right on Lake Erie, like a $1.4 million house. And the fellow didn't want to follow the process. And it ended up becoming really problematic. And we had a couple of battles. And it was the whole thing was incredibly unsatisfying. It actually led to me gaining a bunch of weight because my anxiety levels got so high. But the guy stroked a check for $55,000 to make a very substantial change to his house so that he could not worry about ice dams anymore. But I don't want to work with that client because our focus is, like Ted said, 75 to 150,000 household income. And there isn't necessarily a specific person that we're looking for. It's usually just people that have large enough problems in their house that they're willing to spend 100 to $200 a month to make it go away. I think I should have prefaced that whole little bit of conversation with there was like the Monty Python spec. I'd like to have an argument, please. <laughs> well, you want well, a big Bill. argument or a small argument? Small <laughs> arguments are, are three pounds today. Okay, so one pound for a five-minute argument and only eight pounds for a course of 10. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Laughter is a good thing. So we're having fun here. It is. Oh, we are. Well, we all like each other. That's the key part. You do a great job with these podcasts. You just do a great job. I'm having a ton of fun really here. Anywhere you'd like to take this conversation, a different path here? I mean, we talked about the Home Comfort book. Did you talk about the free sections of it, the links that where people can get access to this material? No. So thank you. To market the book, we actually started a new website. It's natethehousewhisperer.com. And of the six chapters, four of them are actually downloadable for free. So you can get the first chapter, which is the really critical one. That's the one that's probably going to blow your mind and totally change how you think about how houses work. That's called Home Comfort 101, HVAC 101, which basically takes the HVAC system in your car, which is actually a really, really nice HVAC system. You've got fresh air, you have variable fan speed, you have variable heat output, cool output, you have dehumidification on demands. Like there's all these things that that system does that I wish a house would do. And typically our houses, if we do HVAC upgrades, end up with those capabilities. But all of those are talked about in a way that's very easy for a homeowner to understand. 
demand. And for an HVAC contractor, that should really help increase your ticket size. In fact, one fellow here in Cleveland uses that chapter as a download on his website, and he gets three to eight leads a day off of it. And he's seen it help his ticket sizes. So it reduces friction for people buying some extra items. So going with a higher line model, buying a dehumidifier, buying a better filter, all that sort of thing, the frictions reduce. So that's available for free, as well as a chapter on lighting and how to buy efficient light bulbs you actually like, and then a chapter on bath fans. So how to buy and install a bath fan so that it will actually work and not cause mold. So all those are available for free on the website. If you want to purchase the book, there's a print copy And then there's a digital copy, and those are also there. And then that is where I'm actually moving my blogging focus and my YouTube and video blogging focus. I won't be doing as much on energysmartohio.com anymore. It's going to be moving more so to Nate the House Whisperer. We're contemplating doing a weekly question and answer video session. It'll be the Nate and Ted show. Got it. Kind of like what you're getting here. That's very cool. Uh, Nate the House Whisperer really is the hub for the information now and on an ongoing basis. Yes. I'm actually, I'm looking at it now online and it is very well laid out to, for people listening. Nate, the house whisperer. Well, and hashtag electrify everything should take people to it because one of the things that we're also doing in an environment with incredibly low natural gas prices, they frack natural gas in Ohio. So gas is really cheap. We're removing just about every third gas meter on our projects. Yeah, it's pretty insane. And we're giving clients more comfortable homes with pretty similar operating costs. Sometimes they're lower, sometimes they're higher. It depends. This winter will be a bit higher because of the cold snap that we had starting at Christmas. Some of these houses are going into resistance a little bit more than we were expecting. But still not to an obscene measure, particularly when you remove a gas meter here, that saves you $325 a year in fees. And that buys a lot of electricity. So if that heat pump ends up costing a couple hundred bucks more for the year, you're still within range if you manage to remove the gas meter. But also to that point, the electrify everything, it's something that really isn't particularly divisive. It's actually kind of amazing that politically, energy efficiency and renewable energy, those are two things you may have different perspectives on them, but no matter where you come from, there's typically a very favorable view of those things. The idea of electrification and running on renewable energy and not having to deal with unsavory characters on the world stage because we need their oil. If we can move away from that sort of thing, that's typically very attractive. People like the idea of being energy independent. So we started a group on Facebook called Electrify Everything. And Neil Comparetto will chuckle from uh, the HVAC school group because he nicknamed me Mr. Heat Pump. So I get to be Mr. Heat Pump over there and begin working together with homeowners and professionals to see what the path to electrification looks like and discussing the specific things. What kind of water heater should we buy? What kind of heat pump works best? What kind of electric car is favorable? What kind of wiring do we need to do in the house for that? So getting into the practical nitty gritty of how that work gets done, because I've found that that is really missing every place that I've looked. People talk about, oh, we need to electrify this, but you ask them, well, what does that look like? And you get a dumb look. How about on-demand water heating? Can that be done with electric? No, 
on-demand water heating, the whole premise behind it is not very well explored. Don't bother with it. Doesn't save enough. Ted, why don't you talk about selling Navians? <laughs> well, so I'm remembering all of what a royal pain in the butt I was for Hal Smith. <laughs> it were, or you mean are? <laughs> uh, right. That poor guy. That poor guy. Oh, you want to sell what? <laughs> we don't have. Oh my God. We. Oh yeah. Well, these they have these buffer tanks, and it solves one of the problems of these on-demand things because now you can yada 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 these Navians. So trial by fire, the Navians. They're clearly the best on-demand water heater. They solve a lot of the problems, but they still don't save measurable money. And they're very expensive, and they don't save measurable energy. And so unless you have a hotel or something, and the technology for these heat pump water heaters has come so far, and tank hot water is just better. If you don't get your hot water within five seconds, that's a very low quality consumer experience. And we're really, really focused on the consumer experience. Everything that we do, we're trying to get ourselves to a nine or a 10 net promoter score. And if people have to wait 30 seconds for hot water, they shouldn't be giving us a nine or a 10. That's a bad design. And that is unfortunately what tankless is, is it gives people bad hot water experience. Plus, then they have a lot more maintenance because if they have any kind of scale in their water, these things need to be scaled on an annual basis. And the $4 a month you saved on your energy cost gets eaten up pretty quick by one service call. Right. The life cycle cost there isn't beneficial. Yeah. And the $4,000 it costs to install, you're not ever getting that back. Cool. So I haven't announced this in the podcast before, but my wife and I are planning to build something in the direction of a passive house or redo an existing house. And we're just kind of starting that process here in early February 2018. A lot of my uh, questions may be coming from a personal bias, but I think that's cool too, because it makes it all all the more real and makes it more interesting uh, for me and questions I can dig into here. You know what? I think it would be cool for you to interview Ed Kiesel, Panorama Homes, because he reached out to us because he wanted to build better homes. And he was our first new home project. And it might be interesting for people to hear his perspective on that process. Is he up in your area, Western New York? Nope. He's close to me. He's on the other side of Cleveland from me. So I'm on the east side. He's on the west. Ed is one of the few people that I've met that I would be comfortable having him build my home. Although I don't like new homes, so we'll probably forever be buying and uh, rehabbing. But it has an engineering background. That's what he did professionally for 10 or 15 years. And then he just bought his dad's company out. And seeing his engineer's mind work on the home building process is absolutely fascinating. The small details that he goes for are kind of mind boggling. I don't know how he ever gets any sleep. (laughs) Wow. He was really brave because everybody was telling him on this house that we worked with him that he needed a 80,000 BTU furnace upstairs and a 100,000 BTU furnace downstairs. We told him he needed a 60,000 BTU furnace. And eventually we settled with him. We gave a little wiggle room and he put in an 80. So that's 100,000 BTU less than everybody was telling him, which I think is tremendously brave. Yeah. He really believed in your process and 
The other thing that he did is we gave him a hard target of 3,000 CFM 50 for this 5,000 square foot house uh, in our energy model because at 3,000 we knew the 60 would work. We gave him a soft target of 2,000 where like you do this and we're pretty impressed and he got to 1,400. So here's a guy using fairly standard building practices that was able to take a 4,600 square foot house and get a 1,400 blower door on it. That's really, really impressive. Mm -hmm. So I think that the timing would be really good for you to interview him because it would also help you understand what to look for in a builder. Absolutely. I'm on that. So you give me uh, the contact info and I'm on that. Absolutely. We'll do that. Cool. Let's wrap this up. But I think we will come back again together, and maybe I'll be a guest on the Nate and Ted show at some time in the future. Can I take a swing at BPI? Sure. (laughs) Okay. Without BPI, Nate and I don't exist. Mm -hmm. So the very first part of what they do, they create this really good foundation. They create strong people who understand building science, but they have no sales process and they have no tracking mechanism. And they're ideally positioned to turn home performance into a competition and spark market transformation in the process. Home performance is a consultative solution-oriented process, not a buffet of products. And making the sales transition is brutally hard, as if you watch folks like Stephen Reardon and Neil Comparato trying to do this. So instead of providing an end solution that would create a natural marketplace for their training. They seem to be chasing these government incentives with endless new meaningless certification programs. And what I would really love for them to do is start tracking outcomes of their contractors and turning the outcomes into a competitive playing field. Then the contractors could use those outcomes to build their credibility in the marketplace. And so this is part of, I'm sort of surprised at BPI because it seems like they're the referee, but they've got no scoreboard. I see what you're saying. I think you're saying there's something missing, but I actually pulled up the BPI website, not defending them, but just trying to understand your argument and deepen this a little bit, deepen the conversation. But they state themselves as a developer of standards and a certifying body for professional credentials, not a market development organization. So they need people outside of their organization to develop the market. They're one building block. And like you said, they have a good foundation. But I think perhaps I'm going to say if you look at their mission and you say they're making a good foundation, that's their goal is to make a good foundation. Other people have to pick it up from there, other organizations. And I think pressing on them because in our small kind of niche market, they're very well positioned, very visible. Pressing on them creates that kind of attention where it'll reach out to others that could perhaps fill in these gaps and these blanks. But I'd like to hear your reaction to that. Yeah. I've always sort of felt that if you create some pain, then people are going to experience it and try to make it go away. So if I can create some pain at BPI about this gap, I think it's a gap in their business model too, because it makes them incredibly fragile because if a program goes away, the program is really the only reason that people get certifications. And that really bums me out because I really think that if we had competition in the marketplace, then people would get training and get education because it makes them better. Just the way a golf pro 
is always practicing and getting lessons. That's how they get great. But without a metric of keeping score, then it's competitive disadvantage to spend money on training and spend money on certification. Both Nate and I let our BPI certifications lapse. Mm-hmm. Nate actually asked them very directly some pointed questions. Remember that, Nate? Oh, it was simple. I just said, can you show me that there's at least good odds of being able to make $300 more in the next three years because of having the certification? And I was point blank told, no, we can't. And so I let it lapse. But that was a frustrating thing for me too, because I have more than enough CEUs, particularly at that time, to recertify. And it was frustrating to me that that was there. We would like to see BPI be more of a market force. I understand where their mission is, but like Ted said, they are in a fragile position. And that's frustrating because Larry's a friend of mine. He's doing review of my book. It's coming out here in Healthy Indoors Magazine and Home Energy Magazine here shortly. But even if BPI is not the particular organization for this, the odds are that whatever organization does do it is going to be very strongly related to BPI. It needs to be a referee. And for starters, just tracking blower door before predicted and after is a good start. Getting the energy usage is difficult. I know I have the logins for most of my clients in their utility programs, in their utility bills, and I have to go in once a year and pull the data out. And I really don't like doing it. It's something that needs to be automated. That's something that we view. That is where a program or a scorekeeper could be help. Nicer to should be hooking up with green buttons so that we could do that, but that's sort of going off topic. I did want to pull it back around at the end here. So we're talking about a vision for home performance or making it the norm rather than the exception. To make it the norm rather than the exception, this is a very competitive thing. So Ted and I have been playing for years like we're playing against someone, but we're not. And it's kind of tiring to some extent to be the best person in the world at hitting a tennis ball against the garage door. Or shadow boxing. Yeah, Yeah, shadow boxing. Yeah, I want to go play somebody. Right now, we're probably going to be ahead of the game. But if we were playing golf, I don't know that I'm shooting below 100 right now. But everybody else is probably more like 200 or 150. But I would imagine that with a couple of years of tracking outcomes and understanding what happens, everybody would be under 100. And then pretty quickly, we'd all be shooting for par. It would spark innovation and we'd see some really crazy good players. It'd be really fun to watch. Right now, the home performance market is basically hacky sack. There is no score. Was there ever a world championship of hacky sack? Yeah, everybody gets participation awards in this space. So let's go play. Let's see who's really good at this. And there's some people out there that are right where we are or beyond us. So if there's a couple of names to mention for other people to go look at as well, Mike McFarland of Energy Docs out in Redding, California, does some really insane stuff. He just built a house for his daughter, 2,400 square feet with a three-quarter ton ducted mini split as the HVAC. That's it. 3,000 square feet per ton. Rob Minnick does really good stuff. Anybody out West that was trained by Rick Chitwood, I call that group the Cult of (laughs) Chitwood. Those guys are all really knowledgeable building scientists. John Summelhack in Virginia does really great work, primarily new construction. Balance Point Home Performance 
in, shoot, I can't remember the name of the town. They're close to Reno, but on the California side. There's definitely some other people out there that would be really fun to play against. So we have the varsity team already, but we don't have anybody feeding the varsity team. Well, let's take this offline and work on it. If you're game, I'm game. We're working on it. So yes, we will be happy to work with you. Okay. Well, it's an interesting conversation. Very stimulating thinking. Hopefully you got it off your chest here, making the home performance. The norm and not the exception. I mean, it sounds like a really relaxed laugh I'm hearing there. So I think we're doing okay. Thanks for your psychoanalysis. Where do I send the check? I'll take payment in Bitcoin now because I believe it's going to go up. So. I have Bitcoin. So do I. And so is my son. That's a whole different topic, maybe, of different podcasts. Next time, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, guys. It was great fun talking with you today. And I really hope our listeners got something out of it. I'll have some show notes posted along with this. I'll put links in there. Do you guys want to like speak your email addresses? Or we have Nate the House Whisperer. That'll definitely be in there. Any other forms of contact you want to mention here in audio? And I'll put in the show notes. Well, my email, if anyone wants to reach out, is nate at energysmartohio.com. So that's the best way to get a hold of me. Ted? Give them your phone number so they can listen to the voicemail. Well, that's that's true, so that I could not pick up, yes. Yeah, if you want to hear an unusual voicemail, uh, my voicemail basically says, don't leave a message. <laughs> unless you're a client. Yes, unless you're a client. And if you aren't a client, you need to go to the website and sign up to become one, but you can't do it here. If you do want to hear that, it's 330-524-6495. Okay. <laughs> now you're going to get all these phone calls. Uh, I hope you just did open yourself up there. Coming. We'll see what happens. Well, it's on Energy Smart Ohio too, so it's there if somebody wants to go hunt for it. You can find Nate on Facebook. Yeah. And LinkedIn. Yeah. What's your Twitter handle? Twitter is Energy Smart Ohio. Ted, for you, contact, contact. Get me through Nate. All right. He's your filter. He's your concierge. Okay. Very good. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. And we appreciate the listeners who stuck through it here a little bit over an hour. And we had some fun and we'll have these guys back again soon. Take care, guys. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much, Bill. Hope you enjoyed what you heard today. Ted and Nate's vision for transformation of the home performance market, kind of coming to some uh, understandings of their own, of course, over the course of about a decade or so, and how they wish to see things continue to change. Take a look in the show notes for contact information, and you can get a hold of these guys and see if you can challenge them or figure out how you can help them. There are other trade-oriented podcasts in the Blue Collar Roots Network, and you can find them by going to bluecollarroots.com, where we're helping to do our part to help transform and professionalize the trades. Some people calling it transformationalized, but that's just me having fun with words here today. But we're doing it by filling the skills gap through training and communication. And if you like what you heard today and you've not subscribed, you should consider doing so by typing building HVAC science into the search bar in the Apple for uh, iTunes or in your podcast app if you have an iPhone or iPad and Android going into Google Play or Stitcher. And if you just want to listen directly in your browser or you want to pass this along to someone else, which we encourage you to do, go to bluecollarroots.com slash building dash HVAC dash science. You can also follow what we find interesting here or what I find interesting here on our Facebook page. And that's, I'll just go to Facebook, 
building HVAC science and you'll find there what we find interesting and some different offers and programs and other types of information that you might want to get tuned into. If you're in the market for any of the tools or test instruments mentioned in our podcasts, take a look at what True Tech Tools has to offer. That's T-R-U-T-E-C-H-T-O-O-L-S.com. In full disclosure, I'm one of the co-owners at True Tech Tools. And you can also use a discount code, HVACBS, to get a nice discount at True Tech Tools. I'd like to close here with our quote for the episode. This one's from Napoleon Hill. First comes thought, then organization of that thought into ideas and plans, and transformation of those plans into reality. The beginning, as you'll observe, is in your imagination. So take away that thought, imagine what it could be, like Ted and Nate have done. Take care. See you on the next one.